my closest friends have letters in front of their names, like ex-drug addict, ex-gangbanger. Witnessing transformation in some of the most dangerous and troubled neighborhoods in America. These same young men who were fighting one another became ambassadors of peace. For 12 years, there was not a single crew-related murder in this community. This Christmas, I sit down with Bob Woodson, perhaps one of the most inspiring individuals I know. Founder of the Woodson Center and of the 1776 Unites Project, he's devoted the last 40 years to helping people in the most troubled of circumstances to become, as Bob always says, agents of their own uplift. We must take race off the table. America is in a moral and spiritual freefall that is consuming our young people of all races and of all classes. And the answer will come from the grassroots. But America needs a brush fire that will rescue this country from itself. And brush fires burn from the bottom up. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Bob Woodson, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Pleased to be here again. You know, Bob, um, I always love having you on. Um, every time I have had you on the show, um, you have given a hopeful outlook, even as we were discussing some of the most difficult questions of the nation. And of course, it's it's a Christmas show uh, today where we're, this show is broadcasting on Christmas Day. I wanted to kind of break the, uh, the wall here and just say to the viewers, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year to everybody. And I'm going to start with this premise. And we were, as we were talking earlier, you, you said it really, really beautifully. You said, we really have to think about how to win when we're dealt a losing hand. And I think there's a lot of people out there right now that, that are feeling that way. Like the, there isn't, they, they're really not holding a winning hand, but nonetheless, um, there's all sorts of scenarios that you've been involved with for decades of people actually doing that. Yeah, I've been blessed to serve people that others run away from. I proudly say that 80% of my closest friends have letters in front of their names, like ex-something, <laughs> ex-drug addict, ex-gangbanger. And they have, through God's grace, have been redeemed. And so what I, I spent my whole life examining and participating in people who have recovered from some of the most challenging circumstances that life can possibly uh, confront someone. So it's because I've been around people who have not only survived and thrived in the face of despair, but they have some very valuable lessons to teach us about this, about this country and, and about the challenges that we as individuals face. Um, Bishop Sheen, one of my favorites, gave a speech 50 years ago. He said, America is like an eagle, that's why, that nest high in the mountains. And when the eaglets get to a certain point, they take the feathers out the nest and push them out and the eaglets will fall to the earth. But just before it crashes, the mother will grab it and take it back up to the top. And this process is repeated until the eagle learns to fly. America is like that. God has thrust her out, and she's in a free fall. But God is going to seize her just before that fall and take her back up to the mountain until we learn to fly and soar again. You know, Bob, uh 
that's interesting that you say that right now because just as we were kind of coming to this interview <laughs> having lunch, uh, there was a bald eagle circling over the parking lot, kind of an unexpected sight, and a whole bunch of people were looking up. I was wondering why are people looking up? Well, uh, the, perhaps perhaps this is the bald eagle uh, that, that you're that you're talking about here. I'm seeing and I'm hearing a lot of desperation among people, and actually, you know, I. I'm remembering how you actually got into this work, how you engaged these communities very, very early on while you were still in the civil rights movement. Tell me about that, because I, I've read about it, but I don't think I've ever, you've ever told me. Well, I was a, a, a young civil rights leader. You know, I came from a, a very low-income neighborhood. Dad died when I was nine, uh, and, uh, leaving my mother with fifth grade education with five children to raise. I was the youngest of, of five. I dropped out of high school at age 17, went into the military, and then found myself there and finished high school and came out and went to college. Um, and so, but I got involved in the civil rights movement because I thought America's greatest challenge was racial, and it was during the 60s. But I really left the movement be over several issues. One was force busting for integration. I believe the opposite of segregation was desegregation, not integration. That I never, I, I never believed that the civil rights issue should have been argued as separate as inherently unequal. It is strategically unequal. Because if you say something is separate that is inherent in it, you mean that anything is all black is all bad and everything is white is all good. And so I, I, I got pushback from the fellow, my peers. But the second and most profound issue was that there was a bait and switch game going on. They were using the demographics of low income blacks to promote remedies that generated resources that went to middle class people like myself, who was well educated at the time. But the, the plight of poor people was, was abandoned. And so I, I led demonstrations outside of Wyeth Laboratory in Westchester, Pennsylvania. When they desegregated, they hired nine black PhD chemists. And we asked them to join the movement. They said, we got these jobs because we were qualified, not because of the sacrifices of people who were janitors, factory workers, ordinary black folks. And I realized this huge bifurcation in the black community so from that day forward, I began to work on behalf of low-income people of all races. The greatest barrier facing America is not racial. It is class. It is upward mobility for those at the bottom. And so that sort of set me uh, in one place when the civil rights movement morphed into a race grievance industry, that sort of set me apart and defines the journey that I have been on for the last 40 to 50 years, and that is to promote America's greatest challenge is those who lack upward mobility from the bottom. And they're white, they're black, they're brown, they're red, and there's where the focus uh, should be, but it is not. So there's this, there's a line that you said, I think, I don't know if this was the same incident in Westchester that you just mentioned, but you basically said, I real, there was a moment that you realized the real power is in the streets. Well, I realized that, as I said, 80% of my closest friends are people who experience brokenness in their life. And their greatest challenge is how to overcome brokenness. But it was also, there's this, this, this separation, this distinction that people have been conditioned to believe 
that, that the greatest challenge is external, coming from external forces. Uh, Chuck Swindell, Pastor Swindell, I think summarized what I believe to be the, the, the fact is that 10% of who we are is defined by external circumstances. Your family, racism, but 90% of who you are and what you do is defined by your attitude about the 10%. What I concentrate on is helping people to understand that you have responsibility for to be agents of your own uplift, regardless of circumstances. But there are powerful forces telling large groups of people, particularly blacks, that you, your life is defined by the external circumstance. And therefore, until those circumstances change, you can't expect to flourish. And this is a poisonous message. There's nothing more lethal than to say to people that their destiny is determined by factors that are outside. And it's poisonous to say to any people that your, your, your destiny is determined by people that are external. And that's where the whole race, I, I part company with the race issue. It's preventing us from addressing the critical crisis facing America. This is a powerful idea that 90% of who you are is determined about your attitude towards, to, towards that 10%. But another way of looking at it is that people could actually be denying 90% of who they are if they're purely focused on that 10%. That is true. That's what's wrong today. There's nothing more lethal than giving people a convenient reason for their failure. When you say that, that, that your destiny is determined by people who don't like you, it's really, and particularly in a racial context, it's really an embrace of white supremacy oh. for people who are well-meaning to say to people that, that if, you, if you're engaging in self-destructive behavior, it's not your fault. It's someone else's. You know, there are two ways to deny people an opportunity to compete. One is to deny them by law, the way we used to do under segregation. But the second one that is much more disabling is to say to them, you don't have to compete. Because of the legacy of slavery and discrimination, you are an exempted class. Therefore, we will just provide you with opportunity. You don't have to compete. You don't have to have the same test scores. The entry standards will be dumbed down for you. Because of past disadvantage and because you were denied opportunity in the past, we're going to lower the standards. That is what we're confronting today. And that prevents us from making progress. But again, uh, what we do at the Woodson Center is that we challenge that paradigm, not with a counter-argument, but we do it with counter-experiences. That people are motivated to improve their lot when they are shown victories that are possible. So the Woodson Center emphasizes, and then I want to share with your viewers, examples of people who have achieved against the odds under the worst of circumstances we have much more to learn from studying success than we do studying failure. You can learn nothing from studying failure except how to fail.
If you wanted to learn how to play an instrument, would you go to five people who failed and say, what mistakes did you make? No, you'd go to the one person who's mastered the instrument and say, share with me your success. And that's what the Woodson Center does, that, that we look back historically to say, how did people prosper in the face of oppression? Not how many people failed. It's not denying that people failed, but you learn more by studying success than you do. That's why I say that even when you dealt the losing hand, you can achieve. There are 20 blacks who were born slaves who died millionaires. And they did so because they followed certain success paths. Frederick Douglass, this is Christmas time. Mm -hmm. Frederick Douglass said that the worst time on the plantation was Christmas because the slave masters gave the slaves off a holiday between Christmas and New Year's. But the slave master wanted the slave to define freedom as self-indulgence and dissipation. So the slave masters often provided rum to the slaves and even had a competition as to whose slave could drink the most because they wanted slaves to define freedom with self-indulgence. So after the participating in these orgies of self-destruction. Some of them became sick and concluded that it's better to be slave to man than to be slave to Rome. Not every uh, a slave responded mm. to that enticement. And Frederick Douglass said there were some who responded by taking that time to visit family members to learn to read. Some used that time to hire themselves out so they could purchase their freedom. That even in a slave system, you have a choice. That's the 10% is slavery. Frederick Douglass said, there are people who were in slavery, but slavery was not in them. He said at a certain point, he became a man who was a slave instead of a slave who was a man. And so if, if people under circumstances of slavery could make a choice when they're confronted with oppression, then certainly today people can make form, informed choices. And that pattern therefore persisted even in the Richter Frankel, A Man's Search for Meaning, he was in the death camps. He lost his children and his wife, never saw them again. For four years, he faced death every day. He said, and even in those oppressive circumstances, there were bad prisoners and good guards. And also, there were some who just acquiesced and gave up. There were some who identified with their oppressors and became capos and more brutal to their people than, than the Nazi guards. But there are others like Viktor Frankl who made the kind of choice that that slave did to visit his family. He used that to say, if you control nothing else, you can control your own personal response to oppression. And so you have control over yourself. And so what the Woodson Center has chronicled in the, the years that we've been 
is that we have told the stories of people who have achieved against the odds, even though they were dealt a losing hand. And we chronicle the what steps did they take to win. And one of the attitudes that they have, even about oppression, is they never succumb to bitterness. Dr. King described agape love, what I call radical grace. Mm -hmm. And that's a part of survival too, agape love. Dr. King said, we should never succumb to bitterness, even against an oppressor. What we should seek is not the, the humiliation or the destruction of the oppressor, but always seeks the oppressor's redemption, while at the same time protecting yourself against the oppressor. And if you read about Dr. King, he witnessed to that principle when his family, his wife was sitting in the living room and heard a crash, and she got out of the house before it was firebombed and it blew up. And Dr. King was surrounded by hundreds of armed blacks, angry, ready to tear that city apart. And he was able to counsel peace and said, this is not the way. There's an example of radical grace. And you see that throughout the history of successful people who have fought against slavery and oppression not by succumbing to anger and resentment and seeking retaliation that is commonplace today, but they seek to alter the attitude and behavior of the oppressor when they refuse to respond in kind and be oppressive themselves. It's such a powerful message, you know, and you're reminding me, you know, when not long after we first met, some years ago now, and we interviewed, um, I remember you told me something that, that stunned me, but you explained it uh, very, very thoughtfully and had really kind of changed my thinking about a lot of things. I want to I want to mention this. You said, basically talking about Jim Crow and slavery, when white people were at their worst, blacks were at their best. You have a whole class of, of elites Today, they keep talking about the biggest challenge facing America is racism, and everything is defined by race. And the 1619 Project of the New York Times that said America, because of slavery, uh, that all white people are villains to pay reparations to blacks, and blacks are victims. And therefore, America is almost like a criminal organization, that it is beyond redemption. When you say that racism is in the DNA of the country, I mean, you can't change your DNA. And they're recruiting people. There's two groups of people who seem to mouth this, this mantra. There are those who are ill-intentioned. There are people who are trying to destroy America by undermining the, the founding values to say that the nuclear family is Eurocentric and racist and that competition and, and all the other principles that define this country are, are, are racist. But there's another group of people who are being misled. They're, they're, they're well-intended, but ill-informed. And so, and I think they represent the, the, the majority of people. So we, we believe that you can educate people who are ill-informed, and you educate them by presenting them with examples 
of people that meet the criteria. And so if you say that the problems facing black America today where 70% of some in certain groups of blacks, uh, low-income blacks are out of wedlock births, you know, the crime that you're seeing rampant in the seas, that somehow that's a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. That's, in, that's not true. So in our essays at 1776, we provide proof that it's not true. That again, when whites were at their worst, we were at our best. In 1930 to 1940, when racism was enshrined in law, there was no political representation, and the economy tanked. 25% of, of whites were unemployed, 40% of blacks were unemployed. That's the situation. What, what was the response of blacks? We had the highest marriage rate of any group in America. Elderly people could walk safely in our community without fear of being assaulted by their grandchildren. I was born during, during the uh, Jim Crow era, 1937. Even though I grew up in a low-income neighborhood, 90% of all households had a man or a woman raising children. I never heard a gun discharged. I never heard of an elderly people being mugged, person being mugged. I never heard of a, a two-year-old being shot to death in their cribs. But this is commonplace today. But it wasn't up until 1960s. And so it's important for America to know that when whites were at their worst, we were at our best. You hear people say, well, the lack of economic development of redlining. Well, in cities like Chicago in 1929, in the Bronzeville section, there were 731 black-owned businesses we were being redlined, but we had 100 million in real estate assets. If you go on YouTube and click in Negro Durham, you will see a 40-minute video of a tape we found, a movie, of what Durham, North Carolina, in the Hayti section, was the Black Wall Street of Durham. City after city, when we were denied access to hotels, we built our own. And so it is important for America to understand that the conditions that we're witnessing today have little to do with the legacy of slavery and discrimination. It had everything to do with our response to it. And so what we are promoting is we need to go back, as we have done, to apply old values to the new challenges and some of the people that the Woodson Center is serving today, by, by applying those same values of our founders, they are able to accomplish in the midst of all of the challenges, restoration, transformation, and redemption. I just love the, the concept of radical grace. And, you know, well, uh, I, I want to talk about some of these you know, examples where you've applied what you now, I guess, call the Woodson principles. I think you told me that there's over 2,500 active, you know, Woodson leaders out there. In 39 states. In 39 states. Race, or different racial groups. In, in all the 40 years we've been together, we've had conferences and retreats. Racial animus never came up one time in any of our gatherings. Because if people are coming together who are broken, all they want to talk about is what are the strategies to overcome brokenness?
being broken by drugs or prostitution or predatory behavior is more important than what race. You're not a white, red, or black junkie. You're a junkie. <laughs> and what you're looking for is recovery, restoration, redemption. That's, that's what you thirst for. So, you know, you've had some pretty spectacular, uh, I guess, results in reducing, for example, gang violence, right? And this, and this kind, of, the kind of behaviors that you described. House of Umoja uh, is, is a great example. Maybe you can kind of tell me about that. Yeah, in my, in my hometown of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, it used to be the youth gang capital of America in, in, uh, in the early uh, 70s, in the mid-70s. They used to publish the, the Vietnam deaths next to the gang deaths. A very enterprising woman and her husband, named David and Falaka Fatah, in fact, her 90th birthday is coming up soon. Hmm. She found out the oldest of her six sons was a gang member. So she invited him to bring his friends home. He brought 15 of them in. And because her husband was what we call an OG, an old gangster, used to be in that life, he negotiated with the local street gang to let these 15 boys from a rival gang come into her house. She said, after talking all night, she knows, I know nothing about gang, I know something about family, so why don't you join ours? Again, she's the entrepreneur. She cleared all the furniture out and moved these 15-year-old boys in with her six sons and her husband. One bathroom. She said, we have to be clean and disciplined and work. Long story short, she ret they retired her mortgage in a year or two, and within three years, they purchased five other houses because when young men found that there was sanctuary, a hundred of them now occupied these five houses in this community. She said, if we have peace among all of these war, why can't we extend this to the whole city? Well, all the city fathers and all the experts said, you, it'll create chaos. The Quakers allowed them to use their downtown church. They had a meeting, they had a truce, Gang deaths went down from 48 to 2 in one year. And I was able to follow her around and chronicle everything she did. And the house of Yomoji was born, and the principles that I extracted from studying it became the foundational principles that the Woodson Center operates on. So then it, I knew what to look for. So two years after that, I went around the country and looked for the Fatahs in other people and I found 10 of them. And I brought them together with young people whose lives they've transformed. And I was at the American Enterprise Institute. And I brought these gang leaders together and then community leaders. And I invited three of my scholarly friends, Dr. Peter Berger and his wife, Brigitte, and Dr. Robert B. Hill. And for three days, we listened to these young people explain what changed them and transformed them. And I wrote a second book called Youth Crime and Urban Policy, A View from the Inner City, that was uh, celebrated by Vanderbilt Law Review because Bob Wilson stayed out of it. I let the young people explain what changed and transformed them. And so, so then our knowledge about the process of transformation and redemption was enhanced because I listened to those whose lives were transformed. 
And so that then I was able to establish the Woodson Center based upon the actual experience of these grassroots leaders. And, and, and so that's why and how the center has been maintaining this tradition of constantly listening to, learning from, cultivating, helping them to refine. And then we then take these principles and we're exporting them over the country. If the country is to be salvaged, it's going to take, and that's what we do now. We raise money, we try to study, celebrate, learn from, identify the operating principles. And so my book, um, Lessons from the Least of These, is a distillation of years of experience of listening to, learning from, visiting with grassroots healing agents. I call them Josephs. And learning from them and then being directed by them. And so uh, the center is like a venture capitalist without capital. <laughs> <laughs> so we're able to take those principles and then we're trying to disseminate them throughout the country uh, so that we can perhaps stimulate a moral brush fire that will rescue this country from itself. But the seeds of that moral brush fire are, are latent within the community suffering the problem. It's not coming from professional experts. It's not going to come from this gladiatorial debate between the left, elitists on the right and elitists on the left. And what struck me here is that, you know, when you talk about these troubled communities, it's frankly, it's not just the typical communities that you think of as troubled. I mean, uh, for example, in Silicon Valley, we know that children have a six times greater likelihood of committing suicide than the average across America. How did that happen? If that, if that isn't a kind of a disaffected community, I don't know what is. Well, this is why what the center is realizing, we must take race off the table. Race is preventing America from addressing the critical problem that it is facing. America is in a, in a moral and spiritual freefall that is consuming our young people of all races and of all classes. The greatest challenge facing any person is to wander without content or purpose in your life. If young people are growing up without content or purpose in their lives to the point where they devalue their life, if a child devalues his or her life, then they will take their own or take someone else's. So what we did at the Woodson Center recently, we, we started a group called the Voices of Black Mothers United. Sylvia Bennett Stone is a the, is the mom who lost her teenage daughter. She is providing leadership and she's reached out to thousands of other moms around who lost their children to homicide. And they took out, we took out a full paid ad supporting the police. 80% of black Americans polled do not support defunding the police, but you'd never know that because the elites on the left presume to speak for all people. And now we have come together with moms who lost their children to suicide and, and, suicide and opioid. A lot of Appalachian moms, low-income white moms have lost their children to opiate addiction. 
it's such a crisis in Ohio that they had to literally bring in portable refrigerator trucks to care for all of the bodies. And like you say, Silicon Valley is six times the national average. So we have moms coming together from these three communities in, in a consortium. And so the goal is to form Mothers United to save children. Because those who are polarizing us by race, they're doing a lot to, con to contribute to the destruction of children. Therefore, if we are to address the real crisis in America, the Woodson Center is organizing a collective, bringing these moms together. But in order for us to be able to find solutions to prevent the continued uh, destruction of our children, we must take race off the table. A white mom who lost a 17-year-old daughter in Silicon Valley, telling her that she has privilege is stupid. And saying to a black mom in public housing in the inner city who lost a daughter to homicide that her problem is, is racial discrimination is ludicrous. And so we, we, we have been encouraged by the camaraderie and the, the common ground that moms coming from these three perspectives have found. And we hope to use the organization of this to help a mother, uh, America confront the real crisis that is the moral and spiritual freefall of our, to save our children. So many things I want to follow up with now. The first one is, you don't sound like a guy who's just recently retired. <laughs> so, so, I mean, very briefly, it, it sounds like you're still staying active here. You know, you retire from a job, you expire from a calling. <laughs> I, I intend to, this spring, step aside and turn over the daily operations of the Woodson Center to a younger person. And I've got already have in place a solid young staff that is really running the place. And I think it's time for me to step aside of the operation. But I still want to remain an ambassador to these issues. I could never totally step away from my involvement but I want to use my time to write and to teach and to be a spokesperson for the renewal of America. Because I really believe low-income blacks are the new patriots in America. And they are the ones who are going to be the source of moral and spiritual renewal that America needs a brush fire, a moral and spiritual brush fire. And brush fires burn from the bottom up. You know, so, so many guests I've had on the show and frankly, you know, sort of my own thinking evolving through what I've been reading and what I've been learning about the realities of America, both historically and in the present, tell me that, that solutions are gonna come in the grassroots, sure. not from the top. Another thing is, there seems to be this, you know, I guess, theme that's, that, that's emerging to my eyes of this 
elite, you mentioned elitism, kind of elite contempt for the working classes. Oh, yes. And let's take a moment just to discuss that. I can see, I can see you agree wholly, but in, in, all, in so many different areas. No, you, you, really, you really zeroed in on the, the problem. Someone said that when, I think it was Bill Bennett many years ago, he says that when sort of elites on the left look at poor people and black people, they see a sea of victims. And people on the right see a sea of aliens. <laughs> and, and that many people on the right believe that if these people will only uh, mirror our values, that somehow because you have money and education, that your values are superior to those who are poor. And, without, and therefore, if only these poor people would just do what we do, then they would be fine. There's an old African proverb that when bull elephants fight, the grass always loses. And the poor are the net losers for this gladiatorial debate between the left and the right. That's why, because what is missing in that is trust. And when I meet with low-income people, I do so with the utmost respect. And therefore, it engenders trust. But the problem facing America, as you pointed out, is elitism of on the left and the right. People on the right often say, well, when you look at that, they do failure studies. I mean, they just talk about, well, let's just have work requirements for welfare. And I'm supporting of that. Let's have drug testing for welfare. Okay, fine. But those are all negatives. So what the Woodson Center, if you say that 70% of low-income blacks are raising children that are dropping out of school and drugs, it means 30% are not. Why don't what we do is study the 30%. Only 3% of Americans are entrepreneurs, but they generate 70% of the jobs. And entrepreneurs tend to be C students, not A students. Smart people come back to universities and teach. C students come back and endow. So the principles that operate in our market should apply to the social economy, but they don't. And that's why I believe that the solutions to the problem were come from those that are unadorned. One thing I wanted to touch on, because I want to, I want to come back to this and like and talk about a few of more of these, some of these incredible stories of success over the years. Um, but you've also said that the the civil rights movement was hijacked, right? And this is part of you were talking about how you how you left. But how is that hijacked, and how did that sort of man, how has that manifested up to today, in your view? Well, well, a simple question. One of the goals of the civil rights movement, they said, Black said, okay, let us run these cities. Elect us to mayors, city council, housing authority, health care system. Put blacks in charge, and we will be better to our people. Our people will be better off if you just take middle class blacks and put them in charge. Well, middle class blacks have been running these cities for 50 years. Why then are they that the biggest income gap is not between whites and blacks, 
is between low-income blacks and upper-income blacks. And so why are, are all of these inequities that they are chronicling? Why are they occurring in cities run by their own people? I, when I was debating somebody from Black Lives Matter, I said, explain to me if racism were the culprit, why are black children failing in schools run by their own people? And an example, when I said when whites were at their worst, we were at our best, there were five high schools at the turn of the century in five major cities, New York, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., Atlanta, New Orleans, where the high schools had overcrowded, used textbooks, half the budgets of white schools. Every one of those five high schools tested higher than any white school in those cities. But those, some of those same high schools are around today. What less than 10% of the children could even read at grade level. If we were able to accomplish this during segregation, why are children failing after 50 years of political rule by blacks of these institutions? Racism po couldn't possibly be the cause of it. But you see, it's difficult to, to get a discussion. It is systemic incompetence, that not systemic racism that is the cause of it. And so therefore, we must ask ourselves, what are the practical remedies? Hmm. But only middle class people who are running these institutions that are failing, their children are doing well. There are more blacks in college today than there are in prison. But the sons and daughters of the middle class are in college. The sons and daughters of low-income people are, are, are the ones suffering the problem. It's more of a class problem than it is a race problem. But as long as attention is given to systemic racism, we will never have to address the systemic incompetence of people of color who may be running these systems. Or we can't even get a reasonable discussion about remedies because it has to meet a racial threshold. So let's talk about solutions yeah. and let's talk about your work from the grassroots. And you told me when we were speaking earlier that you had just come from the Benning Terrace area. You have a quite interesting story that's very current, but let's talk about the original story from Benning Terrace, which I find just absolutely fascinating. Well, nothing is more menacing than, than violence and crime. There was an area of Washington, D.C. Uh, about 25 years ago called Benning Terrace, Simple City. Uh, there was a, a housing complex, public housing. And because of these warring factions that happened in a circle, 53 murders occurred in this area in two years. Police were fearful of going in there. I have been working with a group called the Alliance of Concerned Men. These are all ex-offenders whose lives have been transformed and redeemed through God's grace. And they were healing agents, well-known and respected by the kids and also by authorities. And I had been working with them, sharing with them my experience with Yamosha and how to take the principles that Sister Fatah and her husband David had applied. And I was in the midst of a training seminar with them and I said that your, your influence is 
scattered. We need to concentrate it in one area. And a 12-year-old boy was killed at Benning Terrace. And because it made national headlines and embarrassed the police, I said, God has made the choice. Go up and bring those warring factions to my office downtown, that sanctuary. Long story short, because they had the trust of the kids, they actually brought eight young men from the avenue, eight young circle in separate vans. And we met in my office downtown. Sister Fatah said, when young men meet, they will not fight when they're eating together, but they will when they're drinking together. So we had a meal waiting for them. <laughs> and after a series of meetings, we were able to negotiate a, a truce. And there was a public pronouncement of it. And these same young men who were fighting one another became ambassadors of peace. And they went back in, working now for the housing authority as maintenance crews. The head of the avenue became a foreman, and some of the guys in the circle worked for him, and vice versa. And so we celebrated this peace, and we worked closely, the Alliance worked closely with these young men, and they became mentors to other kids. We asked them, what are you passionate about? They want to be coaches. So then they be, we had 120 kids who used to look at them as gang leaders, now look at them as surrogate fathers and big brothers. And so as a consequence of saturating this, this community with these transformed uh, agents of peace, we were able to, uh, for 12 years, there was not a single crew-related murder in this community. So we took the principles that we learned from Benning Terrace and exported it to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in a violence-free zone that's still being supported by the school system there and two uh, grassroots organizations. We exported it to uh, Dallas, Texas. Um, but in Washington, D.C., after the officials who helped us left, the city withdrew its support for the program and went back to shot detectors and cameras and police. And so then you saw the violence go up again in these communities. But at least we were able to understand uh, how one reduces violence. And so I have been blessed to raise some private dollars. And now we're doing a restart in Southeast Washington, uh, starting November 1st. We have taken an, a, a very violent area and identified the, the number of violent incidents occurring. And our goal is to reduce them dramatically over the next few months. And some of the people who are participating have spent decades in prison. And they said if they are able to exercise control inside of the prison, why can't they take that same relationships and apply to a community. And these are men whose lives have been transformed through God's grace. They have been delivered from predatory behavior. And now they are ambassadors of peace. And the Woodson Center is financially supporting it. And also, we believe this will be a moral and spiritual vaccine. <laughs> that will prove that the way communities can recover 
from the scourge of violence is not by ending racism or assaulting the police and talking about defunding the police is doing what I said, taking that 10% that is the problem and applying the 90% uh, of making them agents of their own recovery. The solutions to the problem are in the same zip code as the problem. The solution is the same. But it's internal. You must support an internal restoration and transformation and redemption. And that's what the Woodson Center is, is, is betting on. Well, and so, you know, this spending terrorists, this these two gangs sitting across a table eating. Um, what exactly happened at that table that people that were ready to kill each other, you know, not too long before, suddenly decided to work together? Like, what, what do, you, do you remember? What is it that made that change? All of them wanted peace. They just didn't have a pathway to peace. Hmm. Someone asked me, um, why would a drug dealer give up a lucrative drug trade for a $6.50 an hour job? And I said, if you were a lawyer and you could make three times the amount of money setting up a practice in an area where you could be shot any day, would you do it? Well, these young men are as rational as anyone else. They know that the price that they had to pay for their lifestyle wasn't worth it. But most of them just need a respectful way to say no. They're just waiting for someone to point out a path towards responsibility. Hmm. And it has to come from a respected source. Hmm. See, when these men who spent all this time in prison, when their character changed, their characteristic had an advantage. See, their reputations didn't change. <laughs> their experience didn't alter. What did change is their values, attitude, and therefore their behavior. And so then they're able to go into these communities and persuade young people or provide young people with a respectful way to say no to violence and self-destruction. In other words, they say, so-and-so is a tough guy. And if he says, peace is worth the price, then maybe I can trust in what he says. That's the magic sauce. A witness is more powerful than an advocate. An experience will always trump an argument. When, when Jesus was approached by the servants of John the Baptist to say, are you the one or do we seek another? He didn't pull out his resume and say, wasn't I born on Christmas? He healed in their presence and say, go tell him what you saw. These men and women do the same thing. They, they have the trust and confidence of young people. And the young people know that their word is their bond. And if these young people say, I knew him to be a drug dealer, or he was one of the toughest guys in my neighborhood, and if he says, 
redemption is worth it, then I believe it. And so that's real leadership. And these are indigenous healing agents that are contained in everything. When, when you heal a snake bite, what do you do? You take some of the venom of the snake, right? To produce the antivenom. And so the, the way we can heal our cities is to look internally for healing agents and provide them with the resources they need and the guidance so that they can begin healing from within those communities. But the answers are within. They're not some intellectuals debating other intellectuals about institutional racism or questioning whether the two-parent families are, whether or not faith is important anymore. Only elites can afford to have that kind of debate and discussion while their children are in safe schools. You know, Bob, this reminds me again, there was, a, I, I believe it was uh, Rob Henderson that came up with this idea in an essay called Luxury Beliefs. I don't know if you came across that, but that's what, what you just said makes me think of that. And I see this idea. There's a certain group of people can afford to believe things uh, for which uh, they're, they don't have to bear any accountability. It is true. Most people who, who are atheists are leaders. But even atheists don't name their children Judas. <laughs> you ever heard of anyone named their son Judas? Dennis Prager had another test. He talked about if, if you were ran out of gas in a high crime neighborhood, 11 o'clock at night, and you had to walk two blunts to a gas station, and there are two groups of men that you could confront. One group was coming from a bar. The second group just left Bible study. <laughs> Which group would you want to confront? <laughs> well, I think, I hope the answer is obvious. Everyone listening and watching knows what the answer is. You can be an atheist all you want, but there's a survival instinct inside that tells you you'd rather confront people leaving Bible study. You don't even have to be a believer to understand the secular consequence of people's beliefs, how it influences their behavior. One key thing that you said earlier, right, was responsibility, right? That all of your solutions uh, that stem from the Woodson principles that you derived um, involve agency, involve accepting responsibility. Um, I, I guess as a, as a central point, don't they? It really is that you, that no matter how you started life, you can, you can win with a losing hand. It's up to you. Bill Raspberry, the late journalist, he said, you show me a black child with self-determination, grit, and, and intestinal fortitude, and, and a will to work hard. No matter what obstacles you place in that, that child's path, he or she will succeed. Show me a white child without those characteristics, 
No matter what opportunities you give to that watcher, I can show you that child's failure. Opportunity denied that black child will not prevent him or her from succeeding. And opportunities given to the white child without those personal guidance will not assure that person's success. So Bob, I'm just thinking about something that, that you said, and I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna read from here because I found it to be quite powerful. You said, democracy and capitalism are but empty vessels into which we pour our values as a nation. The crisis we face today is a crisis of values, yes. as we've been discussing. Yes. Yeah. And Samuel Adams was general. He said that a general dissolution of principles and manners will more surely overthrow the liberties of America than the whole force of a common enemy. While the people are virtuous, they cannot be subdued. But when they lose their virtue, they will be ready to surrender their liberties to the first external or internal invader. That neither the wisest constitution nor the wisest laws will secure the liberty and happiness of a people whose manners are universally corrupt. That is, that, that, that deals with the 10% versus the 90%. Your destiny is determined by your values and that a contract is only good as the trust. There's no contract. A thief will always sign a contract. <laughs> Contracts on agreements between two honest people that sets forth the terms of a contract. But the, the fundamentally what protects both parties is virtue. I will keep my word and you keep your word. That's why people like race grievance, civil rights people, many of them I call traitors. Treason is worse than bigotry. You see, a burglar only steals what's in your house. But an embezzler steals everything you've accumulated over a lifetime. <laughs> and for someone to purport to be a champion of poor blacks while advocating policies that are destructive to them engages in what I call moral treason. Give me old-fashioned bigotry. <laughs> than someone who betrays me and profits from my failure. You know, Bob, in this vein, I can't help but see, and just if there's one thing I've learned over the last you know, three or four years, again, sort of looking at the realities in society and speaking with some very, very smart and thoughtful people, it's the incredible propensity for human beings to engage in self-delusion. <laughs> and I mean, we see it in so many areas. We're seeing it on, on display, frankly, in so many realms of inquiry as we speak. So even, you know, this person that you're describing, there may, I, I expect a number of these people simply believe they're doing good. Right. And that, so I think it's easier to deal with the people that are 
know that they know they're doing bad. <laughs> but that's that's the point. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about that in Letters from Prison. The German theologian who was martyred, uh, killed by the Germans. You're talking about radical grace. He prayed for the guards who were leading him to the gallows. Some of those guards were in tears because he was praying for them as he was about led to the gallows. That's radical grace. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his letters from prison said, the most difficult human phenomena to deal with is not malice, it's folly. Hmm. There is no defense against folly. It's like a child, they say, sitting on a fence with a razor. You don't know whether he's going to cut you or cut himself. Folly is more lethal because you can't confront it. It's when someone says, but I'm doing this to promote your interest because I know what's in your interest better than you do, even if what you're doing is destroying me. And so that's why malice you can confront, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, with violence. But folly, there's no defense against folly. <laughs> I was a group of, uh, of, of white folks and said, well, what can we do? And Jason Riley at the Wall Street Journal says, stop helping us. Stop pursuing social justice in our names. If we feel there's injustice, let us champion ourselves. There are two groups of people that are, are most lethal today and who are leading this, this, this racial grievance industry. Delano Spears, one of our scholars said, it is guilty white people who are seeking absolution from crimes they never committed. And entitled elite blacks who are seeking absolution from injustice they never suffered. <laughs> and that's what's driving this race narrative. So let's bring things back to our theme that we started here, basically how to win, something that you've been very, very successful uh, with and, and many of these leaders, um, how to win getting really a losing hand. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that this whole realm that we just covered, right, this is, it's sometimes hard to imagine how to escape out of, let's say, a lot of folly around us in society. Well, one of the things that we need to do and that we're promoting at the center is there needs to be a center for the study of resilience. We just need to have some place where all scholars and all that we ever do is look for examples of success. We have a young lady, for instance, right now, who, Camille Bradley from Denver. She was raised one of three children under very tough circumstances, very, very difficult circumstances. I won't go into detail about her personal life. But no one in her family ever graduated high school. She was homeless at one point while she was in, in school. She moved nine times when she was in high school, but she said she made sure that she stayed the same high school because there was a Christian program, Colorado Uplift, that provided a Christian mentor to her. 
that helped anchor her in the midst of the confusion in her life. And part of the mentoring program, they took him on a helicopter ride over Denver. And she got so turned on with flight that when she graduated from high school and attended college to become an air uh, pilot, she graduated at the top of her class from college and at 23 years old is a certified flight instructor trying to get a job in an airlines. But she says she, as a black woman, she does not want to be a check mark on a diversity schedule because it's insulting to all of the hard work that she has done to achieve what she did. She doesn't even like to share her story of overcoming the odds. But she reluctantly did so with us so she can inspire other young people. Well, there are hundreds of stories of redemption and restoration like this around the country. But you won't find it unless you go looking for it. Because the qualities that enable people like this to achieve against the odd also makes them invisible. Because they're not complaining and whining or protesting anything. They're just busy working. And so therefore, you've got to be like a Geiger counter and go and find them. So what we're trying to do at the Woodson Center this year, starting this next year, is to establish the Center for the Study of Resilience and Perseverance. We're trying to maybe work with a university so scholars can be commissioned to look for the Khmer Bradleys of this world. We are taking a retrospective look, looking back at people who achieved against the odds, like Robert Smalls, a man who was born in Sumter, South Carolina, and he was one of six crew members. And on a Friday night, the captain went to dinner. He took the ship, stole the ship, picked up the families of his crew, put on the master's coat, coat and hat, and gave all the hand signals to go past five different garrisons, and turned the ship over to the Union Navy. Congress voted him $1,500, and he was celebrated and traveled throughout the North, and encouraged Lincoln to let blacks fight in the Civil War. After the war was over, he became a very successful businessman and became a member of Congress during Reconstruction. He purchased a plantation on which he was a slave and took in the wife of the slave master <laughs> and her children because they had become destitute and allowed her to sleep in the master bedroom because she was delusional, didn't know slavery ended. That is an act of radical grace. Here's a man born a slave, escaped, became a wealthy person, went back, purchased a plantation. Only in America can you have stories like this. Part of a center for the study of resilience ought to look in the, in, in the past about how people achieved against the odds 
There were 20 blacks who were born slaves who died millionaires using the free enterprise capitalist system. One other story, if I could. Please. There was a man named Elijah McCoy. Elijah McCoy was born of fugitive slave parents, and they escaped to Canada, where he was born and graduated in engineering college. Well, he came back in the late 1840s into Chicago and applied for a job at the railroad. Because he was black, they gave him the most dangerous and the lowliest job, and that is oiling the wheels of the trains. Rather than complaining, he used this opportunity to invent <laughs> a mechanism to oil the train wheels automatically and became rich. He's in the Inventors Hall of Fame. When people tried to develop knockoff of the, of the small thing, I mean, knockoffs, the owners of the railroad said, no, we want the real McCoy. Hmm. <laughs> so that expression, the real McCoy, came from a black inventor, <laughs> and it's used throughout the world. So part of what, on this holiday, we ought to be thankful that we live in a nation that allows these kind of amazing transformation and redemptive acts to occur. Only in America can you have people born slavery and died millionaires and only their faith informs them not to respond with anger and retaliation, but as King said, with radical grace and agape love. Well, Bob Whitson, it's such a pleasure to have you on here at Christmas time. I think it's exactly what the doctor ordered. Well, thank you for having me and Merry Christmas to all your viewers.